0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Saturday, January 5th, 2019, and this is show number 712. Well, I'm recording a day early because Steve and I are off to CES on Sunday. I'm really sorry for disappointing the live audience this way, but it, it couldn't be helped. You guys... Do realize you can still get together in the live Discord chat at podfee.com slash chat at 5 p.m. on Sunday night without me? It's not like you guys listen to me anyway, so why not go in there and yak about football and what you're making for dinner and read up on what crazy new thing TJ is testing? You know, I would have to depend on Kevin and Sandy to keep the kids in line, but I'm sure they're up for the challenge. Well, this week I have only one article that I wrote myself, but Bart came in for a special out-of-band security bit segment. We were kind of worried that since he wasn't on Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, we'd be going three weeks without a segment and there'd be way too much to cover the following week. Now, when you get to the end of Security Bits, do not tune out when you hear Bart say, stay patched and stay secure, because he sent me an update to read after our recording where he was able to clarify some of what he said. Chit Chat Across the Pond was a total blast this week. I asked Darren Carr, host of the Mac Quadcast, onto the show. Now, you may remember he had me on his show a few weeks ago. He has this really cool standard format of questions that he asks all of his guests, so I thought it'd be fun to flip the tables on him and use his format to interview him. In addition to being a blogger and an audio podcaster all about things Apple, Darren is dabbling in YouTube production and video editing as well. Oh, and I should mention he just happens to be a paraplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. Well, we accidentally skipped over it, but Darren went to the London School of Economics and graduated in 1998 with a BSc in government after he was paralyzed. The weird thing about Darren is he doesn't make other people feel like underachievers. And I'm not sure why. I would be just giving everybody a hard time saying, oh, is it hard for you? Anyway, he's great fun and he has a rather sick sense of humor. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing him talk about all things Apple with a little bit of accessibility thrown in. You can find the interview with Darren under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite in your podcatcher of choice. And of course, you can always listen to the episode. Uh, This is episode number 577 right over at podfeet.com. Every year for the last 25 or 30 years, I've created a photo calendar for my family. These monthly collages make us all very happy. I can tell they actually like it because once or twice I've tried to opt people out to save money only to get huge protests and be forced to add them back in. Nearly every year I've used Apple services to print my calendars, wavering only once by trying out Shutterfly instead. While I adore Shutterfly for my annual photo Christmas card, their calendar was definitely not up to the caliber of Apple's printing services. I switched back to Apple and I never tested any other services. Now the project section of iPhoto where I originally created my calendars had layout tools that I would put just above mediocre. When Apple introduced Photos as the replacement for iPhoto, I was optimistic that the layout features would be vastly improved. I was severely disappointed on that front. If anything, they went from mediocre to horribly frustrating. Now, Bart also makes calendars with Apple Photos, so he and I used to get together every year to bemoan how awful the process was. It was kind of an annual ritual where we'd get together and go, Oh yeah, I hate this. Did you try this? This is horrible. Fast forward to this year in September when Apple announced that they were dropping their own tools for making projects like calendars, books, cards, and more. But they didn't leave us high and dry. They created a plug-in architecture for Apple Photos so that third-party companies could fill the gap. Apple has a support article that I've linked to in the show notes that describes how these new extensions are supposed to work from within Apple Photos. I'm going to focus this article on the extension called Mimeo Photos. Turns out Mimeo Photos is the company that Apple used for all of its print services in the past. In theory, with Mimeo Photos, we'll get the same quality of products, but with a new interface for layout. The old Apple interface was so aggravating, I was again looking forward with optimism to the new Mimeo Photos interface. I should mention that Mimeo Photos isn't the only option available. Motif is another good option for creating calendars and other kinds of projects. I tested both of them, and while they were both really good, I found that Mimeo Photos was more to my liking, but it's definitely worth taking a look at Motif as well. Now, you may never make a calendar yourself, but if my experience is anything like how it works for books or cards or other services, you might just want to give Mimeo Photos a try. To initiate a project in Apple Photos, you go to File, you pull down to Create, and there you'll see choices for Book, Calendar, Card, Wall, Decor, Prints, Slideshow, and others. If you choose an option, such as Calendar in my example, you'll see an icon for App Store. When you go to the App Store, you'll see five other extensions you can add, along with Motif and Mimeo Photos. So there's not a whole lot of extensions in there yet, but it is a really new service. The other services are for wall art, web galleries, and collages. After you install one or more of these apps from the App Store, you'll now see them in your Applications folder, but they don't actually do anything in that standalone environment. You access the applications by going back into Photos, back into the Create menu, and now you'll see your newly installed extensions. It's important to remember, though, that they do exist as applications inside your Applications folder, because removing them from that directory is how you would uninstall them. You can disable them from within System Preferences, Extensions, Photos, Projects, but they'll just be disabled, not uninstalled. I installed one of them with App Delete, and I found about a half dozen files and folders sprinkled about my system. So you might want to use an app removal tool to uninstall these like you would a normal application. All right, let's finally have some fun with Mimeo Photos making a calendar. There are two ways to add photos to a project. You can start by selecting a series of photos and then choosing File, Create, or you can create the project first and then drag the images onto the name of the project in the left sidebar. Either way works fine, but it's good to know the second option because invariably you're going to realize later on, after you've started, that you want to add some more photos. When you first go into the project created by Mimeo Photos, you'll see an option to choose the start date of the calendar. Right here, I have my second best recommendation tip of all time. You remember my favorite one, right? My favorite one is the one that I teach you guys about naming things Delete Me that you're going to want to delete later. Anyway, it has nothing to do with this topic, but my second one is right here. My tip is to start your calendar with the first month being February, not January. Here's the problem it solves. How nuts is it at the end of the year? I mean, you've got holiday shopping, you're drinking too much eggnog, you've got annoying relatives over. All the things that fill our lives make it too stressful to work on a calendar in December. I used to use, lose my ever-loving mind working on the calendar in December. Now I peacefully do it in January with a start date of February. It's also fun to separate the calendar delivery away from the holidays so your recipients have it to look forward to after all the excitement of the holidays is over. It's a win across the board, trust me. When you start a new calendar project, Mimeo Photos defaults the calendar to the following year. So if you started this in December of 2018, it would have started the calendar in in 2019. But since I waited till January to start working on my project, the year defaulted to 2020. Sure wish I'd noticed that before I started laying out my calendar. I laid out 10 of 12 months before I noticed it didn't say 2019, it said 2020. Now, as near as I could figure, you can't change the year after the project's been started, so I had to start over. So if you take my tip of starting in February, keep an eye on that initial uh, year at the very, very beginning before you start making your project. When you finally get started on your calendar, Mimbo Photos has five sections down the far right-hand panel. You've got Events, Photo, Text, Layout, and Background. If you select Photo, you should see all of your photos in a grid just to the right of the calendar layout itself. You can use the pull-down to choose whether to see all photos, used photos, or unused photos. This can be really handy to make sure you don't use the same photo twice, like I did one year. You also do see little check marks on the ones you've used, but I've managed to look right past that, put the same photo in twice anyway. The Layout tab is what gives me, me the most joy in Mimeo Photos. I mentioned how, let's call it disenchanted, I was with Apple Photos Layouts. One of the things that bothered me was the lack of flexibility of the layout tools. You got a very specific set of options, and that was what you had to live with. The layout options were in very tiny, tiny little thumbnails. They were very light gray on top of white. The interface was horrible. It was really difficult to see what you were choosing. I would often lay out several months before noticing that the photos didn't bleed all the way to the bottom because I hadn't picked my intended layout option. With Mimeo Photos, you get so many more layout options. They're very easy to see, and they're just a starting point, really. I'll describe what I mean by that in just a minute. But first, let's describe a problem to be solved. I collect images from my family members for inclusion in the calendar. They're much more likely to like the calendar if it's pictures they've chosen. That's another tip. Well, one set of family members, who shall remain unnamed, insists on submitting vertical portrait images, not landscape images. With Apple Photos, if you chose a layout that allowed you to put in a portrait mode photo, that meant it dominated half of the entire calendar page, relegating the rest of the images to share the other half. There was no way to change this. This severely limited my ability to equally distribute the photos so everyone was represented. Mimu Photos has way, 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 way more options for layouts. And like I said, they are just a starting point. They even have a section for five plus photos. One of the options is for five portrait photos, where the center one is tall and real skinny and the other four are a little bit squatter. That let me use a bunch of portrait photos and crop some in height, some in width. Lots of flexibility. Once you drop in a layout, if you click on one of the little blocks representing a photo you're going to be inserting, Mimeo Photo zooms in on that image. It's delightful to have it zoom in automatically like that. At this point, simply click on a photo and it will be dropped into that block. By default, you'd be in pan and zoom mode, so you can pan and zoom, and your image will be cropped to the shape of the block. You can drag on screen and slide your image around within that cropped block. But the real fun is to hit the Transform button. I mentioned that the layouts are the starting point, and here's how you go way beyond the the, the standard layouts. With Transform, you get handles on the four sides of the block. These four handles let you expand and contract the sides of the block up to the limit of the images you put in. So let's say that tall screen, skinny crop doesn't quite work and you need a smidge more width on that image, you can steal it from the other image blocks. In transform mode, you also get handles on the four corners. These handles give you complete freedom to resize and reshape the image block. This came in most handy to me in allowing me to bleed the images all the way to the edge. I like the entire calendar page filled with photos. Why have a border? Some of the layouts do that automatically, but some don't. So being able to override is great. Most of the layouts leave a tiny border between images, which is pretty nice, and I kind of like that. But sometimes I want to override that too, and now I can. If you do transform your images by dragging them to the edge for a full bleed, you may see a pair of inexplicable orange scissors. I had to dig into the documentation to find out what they were for because clicking on those scissors did nothing at all. I couldn't figure out why they were there. Turns out the scissors aren't an indication that you're cropping your photo. You may be fine with that, but it's nice that it notifies you if cropping was unintended. And by cropping, I mean cropping off the edge of the page. I think the addition of a little tooltip on those scissors would have been nice. With this great flexibility comes the option to have images overlap each other. There's a tool that lets you push images back so you can essentially arrange the layers of the images to your liking. Now, if you're an anarchist and can deal with images that are not orthogonally placed, you'll enjoy Mimeo Photo's rotate option. Obviously, as a classically trained engineer, I cannot endorse such behavior. But what you do in the comfort of your own home is your own business. One of the great pleasures of Mimeo Photo's is that when you're transforming your images on screen, you'll see little helpful alignment lines. When you get an image edge aligned to another image vertically or horizontally, you'll see a pink line go between them. You'll also see a pink line if they're aligned on center, vertically or horizontally. If you move an image to the center of the page, in either axis, you'll see a green alignment line. This is very helpful to those of us who understand the value of true orthogonal placement. Now, you may be disconcerted to realize that Command-Z does not undo inside Mimeo Photos. So you might drag an image or resize it, and it's like, ah, it looks terrible, I need to undo that. Well, it turns out Command-Z doesn't work because Apple does not expose that undo function within Photos to third parties via a keystroke. I learned this originally when I first used Affinity Photos extension, and I asked Serif why they didn't support Command-Z. They explained to me, though, that it wasn't exposed to them. No worries on either application, though. In Mimeo Photos, just like in Affinity Photo, there's a button for undo and redo. And actually, Mimeo Photos has, uh, also has cut, copy, and paste buttons. I'm presuming that Command-C, Command-V, and uh, Command-X don't work either. Well, in addition to being able to add images to these blocks and modify the blocks, you can also change a given photo to be the background for the calendar. Now that's not something I'd probably do, but I can see those anarchists who think tilting photos off of horizontal liking to put in maybe a nice Hawaii beach sunset behind a series of images. There's another great feature. Let's say you've got five images on screen because you chose a five-image layout, but you really want to squeeze in a sixth photo. In the old Apple Photos projects, you would be out of luck. But with Mimeo Photos, just drag another image on screen. You get all of the same features you had with all of the pre-made image blocks that came in with the layout. So in the words of Captain Barbosa, the layouts are more of a guideline. You have total and complete freedom of layout. I started coloring way outside of the lines when I realized this. I could take a wide family shot and drag it all the way across, put a bunch of portrait photos lined up below, or maybe wide shots on the maybe on the one on the upper left and one on the lower right, balance my smaller portrait photos in the opposite corners. My creativity was finally unleashed. Well, often when you're creating your masterpiece, you realize that it would look better if you could swap two photos. You could click on each one and hit the trash can to empty the block and then put the images back in the way you wanted them. But You can swap images by dragging one on top of the other. There's an automatic way to do it, but it's really hard to figure out how to do it. I did it once, but when I went back to replicate the process so I could write it up, I couldn't remember how I did it. I started thinking I was crazy. I dragged with the image in pan zoom mode, and I tried dragging in transform mode, but neither one of them swapped the photo for me. I did a search of the fairly limited documentation, which still didn't reveal the trick. I started wondering, maybe I'd hallucinated this capability. That I remembered I saw the instructions in the quick start that runs the first time you open a new project in Mimeo Photos. Luckily, you could rerun the quick start with a menu button at the top. It kind of spoon feeds you a few options at a time, so you have to wait for it to decide when it's gonna show you the tip you need. Finally, I was rewarded with the answer. You can't swap in pan zoom mode and you can't swap in transform mode as I'd already discovered. You have to have no photos selected, then and only then can you drag one image onto the other, and they'll swap places. I'm sure glad I finally found that. Like I said, I thought it was going crazy. Well, another way to put images into the little blocks is to simply drag and drop the images from the Photos palette on the right-hand side right onto the blocks. That's not quite as easy as doing this swap thing, because you have to go find the other image in your list, and if you have 149 photos to place like I do, that might take a while. Sometimes when you place a bunch of images on a page, you notice that the white balance is completely different between the photos, or maybe one was crooked and you never noticed it. If you double-click on an image that you've placed into Mimeo Photos, it will launch the standard image editing functions of Apple Photos. You can also choose from a list of filters, and you get access to the crop tools where you can rotate the images so they're straight like nature intended. I didn't mention it up front, but when you first start your project, you do get a list of a whole bunch of different templates for the overall calendar. I'm kind of boring. I always pick the one that has the most photos in it and I move on. So I didn't actually look at a bunch of the templates. So I can't really tell you whether it's real valuable to have a lot of them, but they are there if you need them. Now, if you'd like to add text to your calendar pages, you have full flexibility to do that within Mimeo Photos. In the side panel, you can add an empty text box and some of the template layouts come with text boxes. You can easily change the font, the font size, the color, and even add an outline to your font. I'm not a big user of this kind of feature, but I can see those anarchists with the Hawaii sunset background and jauntily tilted images wanting to write Aloha in nice big script across the page. Now, you may want to add events to your calendar beyond the standard holidays you can add by default. You might want to add Great Aunt Martha's birthday so no one forgets it like they did last year. You know how she gets when you forget her birthday. The Events tab lets you edit the existing holidays and add new events, like Great Aunt Martha's birthday. You can even add an image to the event, so a picture of Great Aunt Martha might be a helpful reminder. I went in and changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, which made me feel like a progressive person. The only big beef I have with Mimeo Photos is that I can't print a proof of my entire calendar. With the old Apple Photos projects, I could print to PDF. This allowed me to send the proof off to my family members for final approval. It wasn't uncommon for someone to point out, like I did have mentioned a couple times, that I'd put one photo in twice, or maybe I'd forgotten someone in a place where it would have made sense. The only way I figured out to make a PDF proof is to take a series of screenshots using Clarify and then exporting that to a PDF. This is a very tedious process, but I was able to find some serious mistakes I'd made when I did that. If you hit the edit button, so it switches from eyeball to the pencil when you're in Mimeo Photos, it takes you to a mode where you can see the top image collage and the month calendar at the same time. And it's kind of small. So taking screenshots from this view might be even better than the way I did it, which was taking when I was at 24 plus the front and the back 26 screenshots. So I'd have taken around half as many screenshots if I'd done it that way. Well, after I fix this mistake, you can be sure that's the way I'm going to do it next time. But if anyone has any ideas for a better workaround of this problem, I'd sure be interested in hearing about it. I just want to print a PDF. I promise I'm not going to print this thing myself. I want you guys to print it. Well, I suppose I could do a screen recording while I use the little arrows to flip through the months one by one. Well, I wrote to the developer, and I had a lot of trouble conveying my request. We went back and forth about six times before they figured out what I was asking. Once they understood me, they said... And I quote, currently we don't offer a PDF export feature, but this is a very popular feature request. Now that sounded good, but when they thought I wanted to actually print my calendar myself, they said the exact same thing. So maybe that's like a stock answer to make me feel valued. I wrote to them in October, and as of January, it's not been implemented, so evidently it's not a top priority. This isn't a showstopper, but it is something I'd like to see them add to Mimeo Photos. Now, I haven't completed my calendar, so I can't speak to the quality of the final product from Mimeo Photos, but I have no reason to suspect it will be any better or worse than the great quality I've come to expect from Apple Photos projects, since Mimeo Photos were the people printing them before. I will certainly let you know if it's not amazing as always. In any case, I'm actually having fun working on my calendar this year, so that's half the battle one right there. I mentioned a little while ago that I was working on an enhancement to the Amazon affiliate links for people outside of the United States. For each country, I have to create a completely new login and get paid separately by each account, so it's kind of a big hassle to add a country. If you believe that your country would be, you know, gung-ho on this whole topic, I would definitely consider adding them. For uh, So for this reason, because it is kind of a hassle, I've only done Canada, the UK, and Germany. The enhancement is that now if you click on any Amazon affiliate link I post in an article, you should be redirected to your own store automatically, if you're from one of those countries. Now, Bart checked in from Ireland, and uh, the UK store is his location, and it worked for him as well. Now, the reason I had trouble setting this up was pretty interesting. When I create one of those links, I get to choose between a text link, an image link, or text plus image. I had to write to Amazon to figure out why my links weren't working and it was because only text and image links work, not the text plus image links. So from now on, if I feel compelled to include an image, I can't use their little text plus image. I'll have to use a regular image and then just add the text link manually to it. It is not a big deal at all. This should mean, though, that you won't have to remember to go to podv.com slash Amazon and find your country and all the blah, blah, blah. Now, just hit any Amazon link of interest and you'll be able to see the product I'm talking about if it's available in your store. Hey, in the show notes, I included an Amazon affiliate link to the new speakers I bought Steve for Christmas, the Polk T50 150s. Test it out. It's an easy way to find the products I talk about and a small percentage of what you spend may go to help the show. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Booth Shots, the first of the new year. Happy 2019, Bart.
1: Thank you, Alison. Happy 2019 to you. And of course, to all of the Nocilicastos out there. Um, Let's hope we have... Lots of security good news and not too much security bad news. And that hope is going to last about five minutes. But hey, let's have that hope.
0: (laughs) I was uh, chatting with Bart while I was in line somewhere and uh, I told him about some event. And he said, why don't people just stay patched and stay secure?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so easy, right? You just stay patched and stay secure and you'll be fine.
0: I'm on a um, message group for a... um, a Mac users group, and there's a couple of people who really know what they're talking about who run the group. But the one guy is always arguing with me about things like he doesn't think clean installs are a good idea, and he doesn't ever give somebody a hard time when they go. So I'm on Lion, and <laughs> oh jeez. I mean, there was a woman on I know people like that who is uh, her machine is capable of High Sierra, but she's back two or three revs before that. And I'm like, sweetie do it
1: maybe this is why things aren't working well
0: (laughs) she says it's working fine
1: she's only playing solitaire i guess
0: (laughs) as long as you're not connected to the internet right
1: yeah that that is is the scary one all right for sure
0: yeah all right well we should probably kick into gear
1: speaking of connecting to the internet uh microsoft released an emergency fix for a zero day on internet explorer so if that's how you get on the internet make sure you have that one patch so that you stay secure are they still um, publishing IE? Windows 7 ships with IE 11 as the default browser oh, okay. with Edge as an optional extra.
0: Okay. But from Windows 8 on, it's been Edge?
1: I don't know. Windows 8 sort of is gone from my universe. My <laughs> yeah, universe nobody nobody installed it. Windows 7 and Windows so 10. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like the Vista of, of Windows. The the other Fista of Windows is, you know, they have a hit and miss, a hit and miss, I guess is how it goes. Yeah, maybe even worse. Yeah, Yeah, Windows 10 is Edge by default with IE if you want to go hunt for it, and Windows 7 is the opposite. It's IE by default and Edge if you want to go hunt for it. Okay. But that's, we are now in the year where Windows 7 dies. Actually, no, sorry, it's 24th of January 2020, so.
0: One year away. um,
1: A little bit more, a little bit more, but not long, not long. So that'll be nice uh Logitech then um decided to follow uh, well not quite following the tracks but uh, slightly similar in some ways to the um sennheiser bug we talked about in the sense mm. that this is an app that comes with hardware and the bug is in the app um so in this case it's Logitech and they have an app called Logitech Options, which is used to configure some of their devices like you know set up keyboard mappings and those kind of things um It's nowhere near as catastrophic a bug as the mistake that Sennheiser made. Um, But unfortunately, it was discovered by Google's Project Zero, and they were two days too slow in patching it. And so Google released the details, and then two days later, Logitech got their patch out. Mm. So it was a zero day briefly. And And Logitech, there's
0: a lot of Logitech keyboards and such out there, right?
1: there are and many 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 of them used to be in my house yeah um, i was a huge logitech user until apple made the the flat keyboards and, and the magic trackpad and now i actually use genuine apple keyboards but only the ones with the number pads <laughs> i i refuse to use the keyboard <laughs> without a number pad and yeah. no no the arrow keys only the keyboard with the number pad has proper arrow keys <laughs> you have to have proper arrow keys i have so arrow like keys just arrow little keys.
0: bitty ones
1: I know, and that's the problem. The up and the down are the two most important ones on the terminal. They mushed them together. That's true. I like it. Uh, that then brings us to notable news. Um, oh, I'm
0: sorry, I did want to ask a question. So this uh, yes. zero-day bug is in all operating systems for Logitech? Uh,
1: I didn't check. Okay. I don't know. They
0: certainly are big in the Mac world in any case. I will double-check while you keep going.
1: Yeah, I w- I basically, I would update your app anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's not really... Yeah, it's all about the fact that it's option 7.0.564, but th- th- there is no mention of OS that I can see Uh here. Let's
0: see, it says, in September, Project Zero researcher Tavis Ormandy installed Logitech's options application for Windows, available separately for Mac. Uh, Windows PC. Have... Yeah, I think it's Windows. But hey... Stay patched and stay yeah, secure. Updated anyway. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. That would be my advice. Um, notable news then: uh, security researchers three D printed a fake head to see if they could fool face ID, and it's you know imitation. Imitations is the wrong word. It's um, analog equivalent. Analogues—that's a better word because they're not quite equivalent, as we're about to discover. Yes, it's analogues in the Android world, and what they discovered was that quite a few Android phones. Uh, can be fooled by a 3D printed fake head. However, the iPhone, nope, the iPhone is having absolutely none of it. They did not succeed in tricking the iPhone. Interesting. A... That's surprising. Now, Eve, eh, I think it, 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 probably the infrared and the fact that they had their, the dot projector is it's quite advanced stuff they're doing.
0: I guess, but it's the dot just... projector. I mean, if you, you can 3D print something pretty, pretty stinking accurate.
1: Yeah, but it won't move. It won't do that natural thing yeah. we do, where you know our face is rarely perfectly static unless we've had a stroke.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Anyway, it was interesting. They did. They did not succeed. Uh, however, even if you have an Android phone, there is no need to panic here, because even though the uh, a good number of the Android phones did get tricked. It wasn't exactly a practical attack. It involved sitting someone perfectly still in front of like, I think it was 10 cameras while they scanned their face. (laughs) This is not an attack you can do in the real world, at least today. The day may come when it is a real world problem. And at that point in time, you can start worrying. Or a high value target. Right? But you want to be a high value target who's been you know who has a massive gap in their memory where someone kidnapped and drugged them.
0: Oh, that's right. You got to scan their face. The to scan their faces. face for I, th- yeah. I,
1: think, I think it was like an hour it took to scan the face or something. It was ridiculous. Like it, it really really impractical stuff. So even if you're a high-value target unless you have a blackout recently that you can't explain, but at which point maybe they don't need your face ID anymore. Um yeah so basically, there's no need to panic for anyone, whether you're an Android user or an iPhone user. It is just an interesting data point that the that Apple's tech, which they put a lot of effort into, stood up better
0: okay, yeah, like, so we can just yeah, be smug but for no yeah. no practical reason
1: no, and you know attacks only get better over time, so let's hope that the face i d and equivalents get better over time faster than the attacks get better, and then we'll, then it'll all be good yeah. Um, the New York Times published an article claiming that Facebook gave some tech companies, and examples they gave were Apple, Microsoft and Netflix, um greater access to user data than their regular rules and APIs should allow. Um Facebook are very much naysaying this. Um I think the particularly controversial part is that um New York Times were saying it included private messages. Um, Apple have said, no, we're not aware that we ever had anything special. And if we did, we certainly didn't do anything with it. And pretty much everyone is kind of coming back and saying, don't think so. Hmm. Uh, so I think the most insightful commentary was from iMore, um, where basically, um, ah, what's his name? Really good guy in iMore. Rennie Ritchie basically sort of comes to the that he can't really square the New York Times' description with how Apple's technology actually works, because... There's talk about it being related to your contacts and calendars, but that's not handing data to Apple. That's your Mac updating your address book on your behalf. Yeah. So that's not data sharing. So
0: it's not data you know, sharing so with somebody not, else.
1: Yeah, so that's not Apple getting access to data. That's you, the Facebook user, getting access to you, the Facebook user's data. Hmm. Which is which is it's wrong to report that as Apple were given secret access. No. Apple users were given a way to access their own data and no one else's data, so that's that's not a scandal. Hmm. So it it's it's kind of hard to square this one, and it just may be one of those rare cases where Facebook's no, really we didn't may actually be the <laughs> correct answer.
0: As much as we would hate to give them a pass, maybe this time.
1: Yeah, and I think you know it's important we give them a pass when, when we think they deserve it, because otherwise no one will believe us when we give off about them. Which, <laughs> you know, I, I have been known to do once or twice. <laughs> Just a wee bit. Yeah. Um, We talked either last time or the time before, but recently we talked about uh, bypassing two-factor authentication, uh, where it was the Iranian government attacking US officials, and they were effectively taking, you know, sending a phishing email and then... In real time, proxying the information that they were that the the victims are entering into, you know, into a fake two factor auth, into a real two factor auth, and hence bypassing two factor
0: auth. Right, right.
1: Uh, well, now that technique or a similar technique appears to be in use again by different actors. Um, this time, the target is Amnesty International, and it's Amnesty who reported on their findings. And what Amnesty's report also contains is an extra little sting in the tail. So when these attackers attacked the Amnesty people and they bypassed their two-factor authentication, they then helped ensure long-term access by creating app-specific passwords. Thereby giving themselves... Uh. an effectively permanent backdoor into the hijacked account, even if the person reset their two FA, and even if the person reset their password, if they didn't also think to reset all other app passwords, then hmm. the bad guys would retain access. So it's were clever, they stealing devious. accounts of people who donated through Amnesty International, or no? Much worse, much much worse. They're a 10... At trying to get themselves permanent access into the mailboxes of important people within the organization. So why? this isn't why attacking donors. This why would you spearfishing? Remember, this is all about spearfishing because Amnesty International are a major international campaigning organization who many governments in the world have severe mm-hmm. problems with because they Amnesty are deeply unpopular with totalitarian regimes around the world.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Deeply unpopular with totalitarian regimes around the world. <laughs> Great. Um, inspired, I presume, by the Australians, the Indians have decided that they would like to do the same. So the the, the Indian government has published a proposal for a government law to uh, force the breaking and removal of encryption. Um, so at I the moment, it's that just one a got proposal.
0: Slowed down or stopped or some normal. Sense. Well, something.
1: Okay, the last story I saw was that a new proposal was published literally days after the australian law Uh, went into effect
0: okay maybe i'm maybe i was wishful remembering
1: it's been on and again off again for a while this is by no means the first time this has been floated in india um but this is a fresh a fresh proposal my brother once
0: told me that many ills in governments in the world and and the way we treat each other could be solved with education yeah. This seems like one of those cases where can we teach you some math? Yes. Explain to you why, why this can't be true. You can't do this.
1: You can't have your unicorn. Right. No unicorns for you. And then the last story we have is in in important or notable news is one that you sent along. Um, so a few weeks ago, we talked about hackers hacking people's Internet connected printers so that the printers would spew out messages telling people to subscribe to PewDiePie's channel on YouTube so that PewDiePie would return to his position as the most youtube YouTuber right. in existence. Right. Well, the same pair of hackers have struck again, but this time they're not printing onto paper. They're displaying messages on television screens. Um. The Verge reported the story, and rather annoyingly, it's low on detail. So I don't fully understand what's going on, but I have a theory. So this comes with every disclaimer you can shake a stick at. This is my educated guess. What I think is going on, because... Okay, so the facts we do have is that this seems to be happening to people whose tellies have Chromecast functionality
0: either built-in or a Google- separate Chromecast, right?
1: Yeah, so basically it's that API. It's that mechanism for pushing content to a screen, which is what they're trying to do, right? They want to push their content to your telly. So, you know, the Chromecast API is is an approach for that. Uh, the Chromecast API is, of course, designed to be used within a LAN. And within a LAN, you have a very, very different security posture to what you have on the internet, so it is quite normal within a LAN that a Chromecast would be set up to not have a username or password or anything, but just to accept content because that's what we want to do. We want to just push stuff at the screen. Uh, now, Google's response has been, disable UPnP. And that struck me initially as a bizarre, utterly disconnected, what? Why? What has that got to do with any of this? But I think I get it. Hmm there we have talked a few months ago about the fact that there are some really nasty known and patched vulnerabilities in UPnP and, and there are millions and millions and millions and millions of routers that no one has ever thought to put a patch anywhere within a million miles of okay so if you use the UPnP hack to enable effectively remote access to stuff on the LAN because that's what universal plug and play is for and you combine that with the fact that Chromecast is designed to allow anything on the land to push at a telly, well, don't you then have the ability to push a video from anywhere on the internet at someone's telly without there being an actual problem with Google Chrome?
0: Oh, well, why wouldn't that work on an Apple TV and a Fire TV stick too?
1: It, I don't know is the answer, because mm-hmm. Apple have a whole bunch of crypto and stuff, so it may not be as easy to do. And I have no idea how the Fire Stick works.
0: Right, right.
1: I I don't fundamentally see why it couldn't work against others. But I think there are probably many, many more Chromecasts on planet Earth than there are Apple TVs on planet Earth. Especially given that some tellies have the functionality just built in.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of Fire TVs, uh, a lot more than there are Apple TVs. So that's why I was asking about that one too. But uh interesting Uh, well i don't
1: know i don't know how that works
0: as of the time i sent it to bart the the hackers had a website up that allowed you to watch real time how many uh tvs they claimed they were controlling and it was somewhere around thirty eight hundred of them when i was watching it and i sent it to bart but by the time he saw it it had been shut down
1: yeah it had that uh, that message that um cloudflare puts up on the server behind the thing they're hosting is dead
0: by the way, the hackers said to turn off UPnP on that site well, when I guess it that's was how up. they're getting in. Then, yeah, so that might be why uh, Google is saying that. But like you say, you should be able to have it up if it, if you've got it patched correctly. I mean. We don't. Of you course. should
1: not. That you not that you really should need you in UPnP in this day and age. UPnP has other issues as well, so it's probably unless you know you need UPnP, you should probably have it turned off. That's sort of been the standard advice for a couple of years now. But within the last year, the prevalence of unpatched routers with well documented, well known, well understood UPnP vulnerabilities is just shockingly high. So I think we can put two and two together here, and we're probably pretty close in the ballpark of what's going on. You know, we prob- so probably
0: we probably should put on our our list. Uh, I guess for next year, when you go home for the holidays to visit your family, patch the routers.
1: That's yeah, that's really good advice. I've or never make done sure that. Patch a bull. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I went my my Christmas was was uh, evangelizing one password. Ah, which is, I think a useful way to spend Christmas. Um. But yeah, no, that's another one to pop onto the list. Um, I think previous Christmases, it was convincing family that they needed a password on their Wi-Fi network at all.
0: <laughs> baby steps, baby steps, right?
1: Yeah, so baby steps, exactly. So wow. I think one password was quite a big step, actually. So it's been kind of a productive Christmas.
0: Yeah. Did you actually get some people converted?
1: I did. Oh, yes. wow. Um, well, it, it helps that the patriarch of our family decided to gift... The not patriarchs of the family at one password family's membership. Ah, uh,
0: there you go. There you
1: go. So it's much harder to say no to something someone else pays the bill for.
0: Yeah. My uh my immediate family is all using it uh to to the best of my ability, but uh did run into a few relatives who pulled a piece of paper out of a drawer and that was right next to the computer. It's like, oh my gosh.
1: Marginally above a post-it note on the computer. <laughs> well,
0: and the password, every password this person has ever had that they've shared with me, every Wi-Fi password, it has the same combination of things in it. So I'm relatively certain I could get into their bank account. It would not take me very long to figure it out.
1: A few permutations and you'd be in you yeah, being... Yeah, probably. Oh dear. Yeah, if you have a pattern, don't write it down. <laughs> if you write it down, don't be predictable. But really, don't write it down and don't have a pattern. They're both terrible ideas.
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Lots of stuff in suggested reading because, of course, it's oh, the start of the year. So should, everyone has advice.
0: That, we should say that the Chromecast thing was pretty funny because with the video they were playing was saying subscribe to PewDiePie. I know. I mean, they didn't
1: actually do any the, the, real harm. Which is good. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is most certainly good. But, I mean, what are we coming to where being the biggest YouTuber means it's okay to hack people's printers and tellies? Well, we don't know okay. that
0: he's doing it.
1: No, 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 no. no, no. The people doing the hacking are doing it for the purpose of pimping PewDiePie. I'm not saying PewDiePie is doing it, I'm saying yeah. they are doing it to make PewDiePie the YouTubiest YouTuber.
0: Yeah. It's a goal Which in is, life, right?
1: It, yeah. Whatever floats your boat. If if that's, if that's your thing, go for it. Anyway, so PSA's tips and advice. Um, the first one is more of a PSA than a tip or advice. Uh, Wired are warning that there's a new wave of what they are calling convincing Apple themed phishing attacks. Mm. So, might be worth having a read of the article to just familiarize yourself with this particular scam. Mm. Um, generally speaking, I think your golden rule applies, Alison. Never click on links in email and always be suspicious.
0: I was pleased with Steve. I uh, I initiated a password reset on an account that we share, and I forgot to tell him, and the, the email went to his uh, email address. And he's like, hey, I got this. I wasn't expecting
1: it. What is it? Yay. Yay. That's exactly, exactly the right answer. Uh, clean up your cyber hygiene. Six changes to make in the new year. And these are actually... You know, these are not difficult to do. So this is sort of the kind of advice you can pass on to friends and family. And even if they only do one out of the six, it's still better than none out of the six. Uh, US Cert then took the Christmas period as an opportunity to remind people how you should go about securing those devices that Santa brought for you. So again, simple practical tips from the US uh, Computer Emergency Response Team, which is what Cert stands for. Well, that's neat. Uh, TechCrunch decided to take the opportunity to proselytize password managers. Cybersecurity 101, why you need a password manager? (laughs) Yep. And then when I came across, uh, because it's from an app that actually uses this feature, what is app notarization on a Mac and why should I care? And this this is going to continue to become a bigger thing over time as, as Apple rolls more of this stuff out. Excuse me. And actually, according to the article, Apple have already flagged that in future versions of Mac OS, apps will need to be notarized as well as digitally signed to be trusted by default. Yeah, and I'm
0: trying to remember what notarization was separate from being signed. I remember they announced that. Okay, so what it was.
1: So it's being signed with a very small plus. The app is submitted to Apple who run security scanners over it and then certify the fact that they have run their security scanners over it. Hmm. So it's basically Apple as AV as a service. Hmm.
0: Interesting. And of
1: course they don't tell us what's in those scanners because that would defeat the purpose. It's a cat and mouse game. You don't right. give away your secrets. Huh. But basically whatever whatever automated malware scanning they're doing on the App Store, that malware scanning gets done on these apps and then they digitally sign a uh, proof that they have been scanned. So then your Mac gatekeeper in fact the gatekeeper feature in your Mac can check the digital signature check the verification and then basically know whether or not the app has been notarized and right now notarization is basically a bonus extra sort of like oh this developer is being really good but the the proposed future is that notarization will be required for an app to run without popping up a warning
0: would this help with um I forget the app that had this happen, where somebody hijacked or, or put up a, a fake version of the same piece of software that the injected code into. Um,
1: uh, was it Handbrake? Well, no, it did, yeah. So the problem with Handbrake was it wasn't signed,
0: right? But, which means but that anyone can edit it,
1: right? But then they so have if a the app is problem. signed. Right, so it doesn't it doesn't address it it doesn't address injecting code into a signed app because as soon as you inject code into a signed app the app ceases to be signed. The, the signature would fail. That's oh, what signing is
0: for. Oh, okay.
1: Right, what it addresses is another problem we have seen in the real world where developers lose their private key and someone else uses the developer's actual private key to sign a malicious app. So the app then appears to be from the legitimate developer, but it's actually not because they've lost their key because they had some malware that just, you know, emailed out that file subtly behind their back. And the thing with the digital copy is, like, if I steal your car, you know your car is gone. If I steal your password, you have no idea that I have it too.
0: Uh, Right, right. Okay, so they had it, but someone else had it too. Okay.
1: Exactly, because, yeah, when you steal a digital copy, the the owner is not deprived of anything. It's just that the owner have lost their um, secret, their exclusive use of that key. And so a real problem was that malware would show up that was legitimately signed by someone who'd stole, you know, legitimately signed by a key that was illegitimately acquired, if you get what I mean. Uh, And Apple, of course, could stomp on them after the fact but it's much much easier if you use notarization you can spot malware before it gets notarized and therefore you don't have to pull it back you just stop it running in the first place and that is always better
0: i wonder if they'll do that on things like extensions
1: i would imagine that the technology is going to get pushed ever further yeah
0: yeah cool
1: yeah definitely cool and then there's a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Intego have protect your kids and iOS devices with parental controls, how to protect your Facebook account, a walkthrough, how to secure your Twitter account, how to secure your Instagram account using two-factor auth, how to remotely help someone fix their iPhone, iPad, Mac using messages and screen sharing. And finally, uh, some good advice from Intego on controlling which iOS apps have access to your location data, which was oh. in response to some reporting from the New York Times that lots of apps... You know, something... Occurs Share that information too widely.
0: <laughs> something occurs to me uh, when I'm looking at... We've always got all these how to protect this account, that account, that account. The one thing I don't have two-factor authentication on that I think I should is WordPress. And I looked into it. And it yes, seems like you have to go server. find a plugin to do it.
1: You would, yes, because someone has to... Yeah, it would be a plugin.
0: So then you got to figure out who do you trust. <laughs>
1: Right? But that is always true with two factor auth. You right. can write your own plugin, the APIs are open. <laughs> yeah. So don't get... Or you could get a hosted solution that has a plugin from someone you trust, but Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean you do need yeah, it does come down to someone you trust, definitely. Right.
0: Anyway, it's an interesting one actually. Yeah, yeah, so you haven't done it either?
1: No, I don't like commenting on what I haven't. Oh, done sorry, before. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's something to I've been looking into. I want to I want to learn more about it.
1: No, that's interesting. Feel feel free to share your research. All right. Uh, okay, so notable breaches and privacy violations. Um, Twitter had a bug which allowed more, which uh, basically allowed apps that shouldn't have been allowed access to your direct messages. Access to your direct messages. Now, this is all in the past tense. So the bug was real and was live, but there's no evidence it was ever used and the bug has now been fixed. Uh, Facebook had some similar issues where there was a bug in their API, which in theory meant that unpublished photos were accessible. But again, there's no evidence that it was actually used and has now been fixed. And unfortunately, much less good news for 997 North Korean defectors, um, they got their data stolen and leaked online, which From cannot be comfortable what kind of... From North Korea.
0: No, that's where they're from. Where was the data stolen
1: from? I don't think it was stolen... I, I don't believe it was stolen from any one place. I think they were basically doxxed. That's my understanding. I didn't look at that in too much detail. I didn't really put a star next to it.
0: Yikes. Okay.
1: Yeah, apparently... Yeah. Yep, this is hacker it's, it's, stole it's,
0: it, right?
1: It does say hacker stole it, and it says the attack happened in November, so that does imply it all came from one place. Hmm. Huh.
0: No further evidence. Okay.
1: Godspeed. That's that's not good news. Precisely. Precisely, precisely, precisely. A bunch of stuff in news. Don't want to draw attention to all of it, uh, but I do have a star next to a few of them. Um, The first one is in suggested reading for the simple reason that I cannot possibly find a good news spin. (laughs) Uh, The US Department of Defense Inspector General released a report on the security of the United States' nuclear weapons. Uh, ZDNet's summary makes horrific reading. No data encryption, no antivirus programs, no multi-factor authentication mechanisms, and 28-year-old unpatched vulnerabilities. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. And the Department of Defense published this report.
1: No, the Inspector General published this. Well... So the every department has an inspector general. The inspector general is independent.
0: Oh. <laughs> you always know more stuff about my government than I do. I did not know that.
1: Yeah, so the idea every every department's inspector general's job is to basically be the cop who's on their side but is no does not report to them. <sighs> he reports on them. Which is a very different job as one of the one of the i mean goodness me it's hard to keep track but one of the trump scandals about one of the trump secretaries who did have to resign in the end because of ethics issues and i don't even remember which one because <laughs> there's been so many of them but one of them was fired for attempting as the secretary of his department attempting to replace the ig with a stooge oh jeez
0: okay so that's yeah. that's why you know that in particular
1: that's why i know that because thankfully it failed. Oh. And the person involved has had to retire. Or not retire, resign, the other one. yeah, the, the one where you go in shame instead of with the golden clock.
0: You know, you look at something like this, though. 28-year-old unpatched vulnerabilities, no data encryption, no antivirus programs. This has to have been wrong for a very long time.
1: I believe that the, the logic would go something along the lines of, yeah, 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 but they're air-gapped, it'll be fine. And then you start to point out that almost nothing is actually air-gapped anymore in twenty twenty 2019.
0: Right, right.
1: Because people will insist on plugging stuff into the internet. So while 20 years ago, it would have been fine to have known vulnerabilities in something that there was no way to connect to. It's like, if there is no attack surface, there is no attack surface. But attack surfaces have this horrible habit of popping up. Because we keep on, we want all of our information now, 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 now and everywhere. And we want, you know, like the president can sit in the situation room and see live video footage from a drone flying halfway around the world that's in the middle of shooting Bin Laden in the face. I mean, it, you know, these things are not air-gapped anymore. Yeah. And that sort of needs changing. The point of an IG report is to light a fire under people's backsides. I hope so. so there's our silver lining. I found it. I found it. <laughs> Um, google then got themselves into an interesting bit of trouble with their um, they basically have people inside google who are responsible for monitoring google's privacy and one part of google was keeping secrets from the part of google that's supposed to be overseeing how google deals with user data and that's not good um, I think actually, to be honest, I think the real story, The Intercept have the original reporting and that's sort of linked in the show notes primarily, but the related opinion piece underneath from iMore is actually a more interesting read. So I would suggest you read the opinion piece oh. and then you can refer back to The Intercept if you want the, the, the facts that triggered the opinion. Okay. Um, and there's a bunch more stuff there. Um, don't really want to go into detail. Uh, opinion analysis. Um, some interesting research being... Published? Oh, can you take the giant big notes to self out of that before you publish the show notes? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do what it commands, so I've, (laughs) I've I've skimmed it, and it's an interesting idea. But basically, some very smart people have proposed a new way of designing how information is stored in such a way that it's possible to have modern machine learning in such a way that isn't a complete and utter Big Brother hellscape. So... We need people to reimagine these kind of things. Um, You know, it's it's good to see this kind of idea out there and getting published. And it's written in a really nice and approachable way. So you may find it actually a very enlightening read. And then I also, in the opinion and analysis, want to draw attention to some very clever reporting by Brian Krebs. So... Brian Krebs' hypothesis was that you—it might be interesting to see how many of the top 100 companies on planet Earth. Apparently, there's something called the Global Top 100 Companies list. Uh, so he went onto all of their executive pages on their websites to see if any of them listed anyone with responsibility for security at the top level executive team.
0: Because
1: huh. that would give you an, an interesting insight into the mental state of industry. How seriously does industry really take security? If they have a marketing guy at the top level and they have, you know, a product guy at the top level, whatever. Might even have, they have, a woman have no one there. at the top level. Sorry, I meant guy in the gender neutral sense. Uh-huh. Um, apologies. If they don't have anyone at the top table with responsibility for security, then clearly security is less important to that company than marketing and, and whatever I'm sure else. Got
0: legal and finance and all that, but.
1: Exactly. So all the portfolios that do make it into their top level executives tell you where the priorities lie. So he basically took the top 100 list of companies and did the research. And what he found was that it's marginally more than one third list of security person on their executive team. That's not good. You would think Hopefully just having the GDPR
0: responsibility would make you want somebody up there with you.
1: Yeah. So I think GDPR is likely to start to nudge that statistic in the right direction over the next few years. And the Cambridge Analytica stuff that all broke in 2018, I would imagine would start to nudge this. Because as bad as this is, I'd say if you did this five years ago, it would have been like 5% or something. So
0: I guess. it probably
1: is trending in the right direction. Just a little on the slow side. Yeah. Uh, A bunch more interesting stuff in there. One, I guess, that may prove to be interesting in the future. Stick a pin in it. But there is some new USB-C technology being developed at the moment that could give you basically cryptographically secured um, verification of devices so that if someone plugs in a a messed-with USB-C device, your computer may be able to detect that before it actually starts to accept data or power from the device, which is an interesting idea. So we'll see how that develops over time, but some security on the USB-C port would be no bad thing. So I'm hoping that develops into something that we can talk about in detail later. Um, propeller beanie stuff. It's really nerdy stuff, but I do, I do have a star next to one story in there because it's just a really well written and fascinating article from uh, Naked Security explaining Yet another new and interesting way attackers have found to mess with file extensions to trick people into running executables that pretend not to be executables. In this case, they're executables hiding as certificates. Oh. And because the guy, well, basically, because of how Windows deals with certificates by default, you can actually use it to, if you double click the certificate, you can get code executing, which is really not good. Now, of course, this involves someone double clicking an attachment in an email. So we've kind of already gone off the rails a bit, but nonetheless, if you call something, you know, my favorite movie star with no clothes on .crt. Mm-hmm. If, if your machine is hiding the file extension, you won't realize that you're oh. actually clicking on a certificate, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a useless attack. But what's really, really, really nerdy is that because of how certificates work, the security researcher was instantly able to spot the bug by the hex code at the start of the certificate. Because it turns out that every valid certificate starts with one of only a very, very small handful of hex characters possible. It's basically impossible for a valid certificate to not start with a really small subset of characters. And basically, so he is such a nerd that when he saw minus, 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 begin certificate, minus, 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 U, E, S, D, B, B, Q, he went, oh, no, 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 no. Because apparently no certificate can start with U, E, S. (laughs) wow and I, I mean he explains it so well and it's really human friendly but it's just like okay this is what it takes to be a security expert you genuinely do need to be this observant right right oh, that's I funny. was fascinated the whole way through it was just such nerdy fun
0: yeah well, that's great I
1: almost made it a palate cleanser but I thought no that is actually taking things too far <laughs> it's <laughs> quite that but I do have two palate cleansers for you. Oh, goody. I have a quick and easy one, and one that takes a bit of effort. So we'll start with the quick and easy one. Um, every year, Steve does the wonderful rendition of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Uh, to me, Christmas hasn't come until two things happen. Actually, no. Three things. Among the many things that make Christmas, I, ha- I have three genuine traditions I do not miss that are audio. I have to hear Steve do his Night Before Christmas. Oh. I have to hear Patrick Stewart read me a Christmas carol. And now I listen to a Christmas carol twice every Christmas because the New York Public Library got Neil Gaiman to read from Dickens's actual hand-annotated prompt copy that he used when performing in America.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So he's able to read it as Dickens wanted it read because it has all of his stage directions on it to himself.
0: Oh my gosh, that's cool! Yeah,
1: and so now we have no one near as good as those three, but nonetheless, it made me giggle. Same idea. Uh, we've got to imagine singing this to the 12 days of Christmas, you know, 12, just check failures, 11, pipes to dev null. 10, logs rotating, 9, certs expiring, 8, mem fail failed. Okay, I can't read that fast anymore, but you get the idea. <laughs> 7 gigs of swapping, 6 apps of crashing, 5 timeout pings, 4 flapping ports, 3 wedge shards. Oh, and then it cuts off. Isn't that annoying? Oh,
0: I can see the rest. Two servers down and an outage on level 3. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there we go. Good singing. It made me giggle. I What's a fun.
0: shard? What's a wedge shard? Uh,
1: large databases get broken into shards so that you can distribute them across much hardware. Uh, but if your shards get themselves in a mess, you basically have yourself a nasty outage. It's like a Twitter fail will say. Huh. Because Twitter's database would be massively sharded. Huh. Never heard that. Sounds bad, doesn't it? It's yes. like, my database is sharded. No, no. Yeah. It's supposed to be. <laughs> um, and then the second palate cleanser is really, it's a long-form article from the New York Times. Uh, They've named it um, The Yoda of Silicon Valley. It's their article on a person who, to computer science graduates, is probably an absolute hero because his name is probably in the spine of the book you learn to program C from. He is... a. fascinating character who is probably the closest we have to someone alive today who's as brilliant as um, Alan Turing. He's a guy called Don Knuth, And if you don't know who he is or you know nothing about him, well, you can remedy that by reading this New York Times article.
0: Oh, interesting. You know, looking at his picture, they say he looks like Yoda, but he just looks like somebody who'd be really interesting to talk to, doesn't he?
1: He really does. And I don't, I've I've never met the man. I don't have any... I, however, I do have a sort of a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon connection to him. Um, so I went to university, at Maynooth University, and we have, he's retired now, which is a real pity, but we had an absolute character of a computer science professor who, I mean, the guy's just a character in every way, um, but he was good friends with Don Knuth because oh. he's a mad theoretician guy. Um and so he would often say things like I was t- I was talking to Don and we, we were arguing about whether or not it's possible to tile the plane with a seven-sided recurring pattern <laughs> okay as you do um but yeah yeah actually no it was the anecdote was basically it was I I was unfortunate enough to be a tutor for him because genius but Generally speaking, forgets what time of the week it is. Oh, but no. But genius. Oh, no. So I was the, I was the, the poor um, lab assistant who had to try and make his, his labs go. So I was up trying to get some, you know, information so that I could mark the assignments. And he's chatting away. and he says, ah, I was talking to Don yesterday. when he meant Don canoes, <laughs> And we were having a big argument about whether we could tile the plane with a seven-sided object. And Don said it couldn't be done. But I thought he was wrong. So I did it. Here we go, here's a seven-sided tile. I was like, okay, this sounds very fascinating. And then he looked at her onto it. And went, oh my god, it's quarter past the hour. I should have been in a lecture hall 15 minutes ago. Oh, oh well, geez. business as usual, I'll make it up as I go along. And he walked out of his own office and left me there. <laughs> with no marking scheme.
0: Wait, what do you mean with no marking scheme? What does that mean?
1: I'm supposed to be marking the papers his students handed in. Yeah? And I have no marking scheme.
0: What is a marking scheme?
1: How many marks are awarded for every part of every answer? Oh, how to award the rules for awarding marks to answers?
0: Oh, interesting. Never heard that phrase.
1: Ah, okay. No, we're forced to make them. To, it, uh, like I mean, I uh, I was you know I I I taught information processing CS two thirty for three years, um, to make a bit of extra income while I was a postgraduate student and. I can tell you the most difficult part of writing exam papers is not writing the questions. It's writing the sodding marking scheme. Huh. Because for the purpose of making sure the exam is fair, your marking scheme has to be usable by anyone and they should get the same grade you got when they use your marking scheme against the answers you were given.
0: Oh, even though you're talking about partial credit.
1: Right. So you have to write up the rules for how you assign the partial credit
0: so in a math and computer science and uh science in general that's not as hard as can you imagine doing that if you were in uh you know a literary professor
1: i know I, I, that thought crossed my mind many times as i was struggling to do it for my fairly you know unfortunately not every question in computer science is yes no true false they're not all binary i'm afraid right um, but it's better sort of than to, you know yeah. Yeah. Where well, there's zero binary, right? It's all, well, in your opinion, describe. And then you have to do things like, you know, must show extensive use of references, so many marks. You know, must show the, must show at least one comparison to Shakespeare. So many marks. See, so you, you would actually have to write it down to the point where you can break down the marks. Right, right. And an external examiner is appointed who will take a random sampling of papers and remark them using your marking scheme. And if his answer or her answer is wildly different to your answer, then you have yourself a problem.
0: Wow. You guys are all about fair. Man, we didn't have that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> There's no kind of standardization sh- like that. As a student, actually, and the external examiner has to be from another university. So the, oh, when I say external, I do genuinely mean externally. So wow. basically, it's an interesting junket once a year for professors, you know, because a lot of the time it's English professors come to Irish universities to be external examiner and Irish professors go to English universities to be external examiner. You know, hmm. we're both in Europe, we both speak English. So there's a lot of toing and froing. But it, yeah, the, the idea is to keep all the universities. So a Bachelor of Science should be worthy of a Bachelor of Science. Well,
0: I guess it would eliminate that problem I had. I remember I told you on the show about uh, my teaching assistant asked me out the uh, weekend before finals, and then hmm. I said no, and he gave me a B. And oh, he God. gave God, yeah, an, that's exactly what
1: it's designed to prevent. And he
0: gave an A to a guy, a friend of mine, who had joined the class two weeks late in a 10-week quarter, and he had told the guy, just copy Allison's, the first two weeks of Allison's uh, uh, lab notebook. So here's a guy that only did 80% of the work, and he got an A, and the guy gave me a B. And when I went to the dean, the dean said, hey, he's a teaching assistant. He can do whatever he wants.
1: Okay, that wouldn't stand. That, yeah. that, that would so not stand in an Irish university. Oh, wow. That would be so <laughs> many shades of, oh, I'm in deep trouble if I were to have done something like that.
0: Now, of course, that have. was 162 years ago when I was in college. So, you know, maybe it's better now. <laughs>
1: I was going to say maybe the reason that things are like I'm describing them is because what you're describing used to be endemic here too. Yeah, who knows. I bet no, it's way, still like it that. It gave me a lot of comfort. I wish I'd known what I knew after I graduated, before I graduated, because I would have been a lot less nervous about exams if I knew quite how much work goes into making them fair.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of nifty. So though. I like to tell people that. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, I, li- I like to tell undergraduates exactly how how much effort is put into keeping things fair for them, because it's always hard to sit an exam, but it's a little bit easier if you know it's fair.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, now I understand why the professor running out and not leaving in the marking scheme, you couldn't just make it up. I couldn't just make it up No
1: they were His Literally yeah. cannot do this Yep um, Oh yeah And he also had a dog That went everywhere with him That he, he Actually Yeah Okay Character right He had many dogs over the years Because dogs live less long than humans But uh, he named his first one Penrose After Roger Penrose And decided that this was now a trend So every dog was called after a mathematician Beginning with P <laughs> So in my day it was Ptolemy <laughs> That's a good,
0: good algorithm.
1: It is a good algorithm. So I was standing there talking with this conversation and suddenly a dog licked my legs because I hadn't noticed Ptolemy was under the table. So he was gone. I was in the office alone with Ptolemy.
0: <laughs> Would have traded Ptolemy for a marking scheme, though.
1: Would have done. Although I did. I did spend a wee while petting Ptolemy because he was a very friendly dog.
0: What else could you do?
1: <laughs> Pretty much nothing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway,
0: I, I guess we're a little bit off the security topic, but that was a lot of fun. I want to go read that article. That sounds great.
1: Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Yoda of Silicon Valley, Don Canoose, by all accounts, a really cool guy. If you can judge him by his friends, he was a dead cool guy. <laughs> well, sounds very good. Until next time, you know what I'm going to say, because it's what everyone has to do always, and New Year's resolution time. So, you know, think of it extra hard now. Until next time, stay patched, stay secure.
0: Well, I warned you up front that Bart had something he wanted me to read after Security Bits, so here it is. He got some more information on the Chromecast hack that we talked about, and he wanted me to read this to you. Some more details have emerged on the Chromecast hackery, so things are a little clearer now. For starters, we now have a cute name for it, Cast Hack. I want to give a special mention to TechCrunch. Their write-up really helped me figure out what's going on. I, uh, let's see, Bart gave me a link to add to the show notes for the full article. Bart says, My theory was that this was a problem with UPnP bugs, allowing the attacker to get internet access to Chromecast, which would normally only be accessible locally. I'd assume the attack then relied on the owners of the Chromecast, having configured them so they'd accept a signal from any source. No authentication is obviously the easiest kind from a usability point of view. It turns out I was not wrong, but I was also missing a vital piece of information. This is a two-part hack. Abusing UPnP to expose the Chromecast to the Internet is only the first of two phases of the attack. The second phase involves exploiting a bug in the Chromecast itself that allows hacker- attackers to bypass authentication by forcing the Chromecast into its factory default settings, which then allow the, ha- the attacker to configure the device as they please. It turns out that this Chromecast authentication bypass was first discovered as far back as 2014, and Google were notified about it back then. Because the Chromecast devices are designed to be local devices, neither the security researchers who reported the bug nor Google took it very seriously. And four years later, it remains unpatched. Google have now promised they'll get a fix out soon. So for now, the correct advice is still to disable UPnP on your router if you don't need it. It's a troubling protocol that is exposing you to a substantial risk. Why take that risk if you don't need to? If you're one of the small number of people who really do need UPnP, make sure your router is still supported by its vendor and still receiving software updates, and that you have the very latest updates installed. If your router is out of support, bin it and get a new one. You can't be safe if you connect to the internet through an unsecurable router. Okay, now that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack group? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Been having a lot of fun talking to Marianne about good uh, text editing apps for the iPhone in there. All kinds of fun happening. Want to join our live chat room? Podfeet.com slash chat. And if you still want to go look for the Amazon affiliate links, you can go to podfeet.com slash Amazon. If you want to join in the fun of the live show, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, let's see, today is the 5th, so the 6th, there will not be a live show, but seven days later there will be. You can do that by heading on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and joining the friendly and enthusiastic Silica Castaways.